Hello everyone, this is Zach Helminiak. Welcome to another episode of Becoming CEO. On this podcast, we talk to leaders who are pioneering technologies in the areas of personalized medicine, diagnostics, life sciences, and other related areas. These are the high performers at the intersection of business and science. Today we talk to Andrew Fish, Executive Director of AdvaMed DX, which is the U.S. Trade Association representing leading manufacturers of medical diagnostic tests in this country. This means Andy meets with company leaders and government officials and testifies on Capitol Hill to advance the use of innovative, safe, and effective technologies. On this podcast, Andy discusses the challenge we face as the government tries to regulate constant innovation in the diagnostic space, what it's like to be a liaison between the government and private sector, and how trade associations acquire a unique expertise that you can and should tap into. After the podcast, you can visit sloanpartners.com for links and more information. This podcast is brought to you by Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the diagnostics, life science tools, healthcare information technology, and laboratory testing industries. Sloan Partners, premier talent delivered. First off, Andy, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You kind of have a, an interesting position in the industry. As, as the leader of Advamed DX, you work at this unique intersection between groundbreaking science and technology and legal issues, and then there's the media component and politics. So I'm curious, from where you sit, what are the kind of hot-button issues in diagnostics that you think need the most support in terms of advocacy? Well, you've captured that environment pretty well. Um, our role as a trade association is essentially to clear the way as far forward as we can for the entire industry to bring their latest technologies and advances uh, for patients into the healthcare system. Um, we really, I think, you know, there's a couple of issues that are really critical for this industry going forward. Regulatory issues are always with us. Um, we are in a constant dialogue with FDA and working with Congress on ensuring that the regulatory system keeps pace with technology development, keeps pace with science, continues to expedite clearance and approval of diagnostics as much as possible while obviously still maintaining a, a balance with uh, patient safety. So regulatory issues are always near the top of our list. But I really what I've seen change over the last two to three years is a growing recognition that the even bigger challenge for industry is in payment. In other words, are these products really being disseminated as quickly as they should be for optimum patient care? And in the healthcare system, are diagnostics being uh, paid for at a level that's commensurate with the value they're bringing to patients? That's fundamentally a challenge right now because the answer in many cases is no. We've just taken steps working with Congress to enact legislation last year that will reform Medicare payment for diagnostics, and we're hopeful that over time that's going to result in better payment for uh, advanced technologies. But this is really a problem, a challenge that goes far beyond just the Medicare system, and it's a challenge, it's a it's necessary now for all of industry to work with the broader healthcare system, with payers, with healthcare systems, and with other stakeholders to help ensure that diagnostic value is, a, is accurately measured, uh, accounted for, and then paid for appropriately. From your point of view, is there any sort of quick fix to the payment issue? Is there, is there something that could be enacted within a year that makes things better? 
that's an excellent question. Uh, if someone were diagnostic czar and could just stroke the pen and do something different with uh, on the Medicare front, that's obviously can be driven by legislation. It probably would look something like driving Medicare to a more comprehensive assessment of the returns that diagnostics bring in the healthcare system and then paying commensurately to that. But there's a couple of major challenges. And one is there are certainly questions around methodology and health tech assessment for diagnostics. It's a really complex field. There's no real standard approach to it. It's something that we're working on within the industry. So there really needs to be a lot more clarity around how, how all actors in this space understand the value, the health economic value of diagnostics, which in our view is often under underassessed, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the other challenge, even if you were able to just, you know, stroke the pen and, and have things the way one would want, is that that the Medicare system is only, you know, part of the puzzle. Um, and so it really is something that is more complex than just being able to being susceptible to a simple policy solution. It's really a case of working with a lot of stakeholders to educate and to work on better approaches to appropriately value diagnostics. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about resources people can go to to find out about the things that you pay attention to every day. So uh, looking at this dialogue, this nationwide dialogue or even global dialogue, are there any uh, conferences or events or even media outlets that in your view are kind of pushing the envelope and having a really progressive conversation about this? It's a great question. I'm not sure I have one simple answer for that. These challenges in the sort of health tech assessment space for diagnostics are something that I don't think has gotten a lot of play from a media standpoint. The general challenge of reimbursement, however, certainly gets a lot of play in the trade press in particular. And that tends to be focused more on the here and now of what's going on with Medicare, how is Medicare changing under this new statute, what has, you know, Medicare just set the most, re- you know, the most recent payment rates. But these broader sort of systemic questions around how we better value diagnostics in the first place are something that I don't think is getting a lot of, you know, media attention. And I think it's a sort of thing that's starting to be talked about a little more at, at some conferences. I see what over the last couple of years, I certainly saw the amount of reimbursement discussion at diagnostics conferences go way up. Uh, and it was just the first time I saw, in fact, a conference dedicated entirely to reimbursement and diagnostics was just a couple of years ago. So there's certainly one can now go to some of the leading commercial conferences and certainly get a lot of this content. But again, it tends to be more a practical question about the system as it exists today and how to work within that system to get the most favorable outcomes. And it really is still the, you know, these bigger questions around how to appropriately value diagnostics uh, are somewhat more um, esoteric, if you will, the sort of thing that's a little hard to cover in the context of these conferences or even for media to pick up on. I think yeah. you need to look more to uh, probably health policy uh, journals and places like managed care conferences and so forth to, to, to really start talking about you know, these issues that are really going to matter for diagnostics going forward. So, so when you go to your computer or maybe you wake up in the morning, what are like the top three sources for news that you go to? And that can be either, you know, someone, a journalist with a Twitter account or a particular magazine. What are your top three sources that you look at? Well, I have to confess that I don't digest as much news as I would like to on a daily basis. It's just the nature of the work. And I think many people are in that position. Sure. Um, 
I tend we do a news roundup internally, which tends to pick a lot of the a lot of the key things. I I definitely use LinkedIn and scan LinkedIn fairly frequently. Uh, I scan my Twitter feed. I look to some of the you know trade press certainly in the field. It's subscribed to a number of newsletters, which I have sorted into a news folder. And so I just, you know, scan, do scan a number of publications. I find that some of the the daily posts from the trade publications and um, some blogs are often the best initial kind of catch-all for the headlines of the day. But I have to say that I spend a lot of my, a lot of my time here working on policy development. And so we're working on things that, you know, get covered after we've been working on them. In other words, they start to make news when there's draft legislation floating around or something like that. So I don't, my day does not turn on what's happening in the news on a daily basis unless it, unless it, uh, unless it really impacts something that we're working on from a political or legislative agency standpoint. Sure. Your work is more likely to become the news than to be a result of it. That's um, certainly true. I'm I'm curious what a typical day looks like for you because I imagine you're meeting with lots of company leaders about their science and their needs and things like that, and then also policymakers. Could you run down what a typical day looks like for you? That's a good another good question. There's probably not a typical day, but there's a typical set of things that I'm juggling uh, at any given time, uh, and certainly includes the things that you're talking about, which is regularly interacting with people from our member companies. That's one of the most important things that I and the rest of the team here does. We not only do we have a dedicated board of CEO level board of directors for Advamed DX, uh, and we have really board meetings, but we also have a number of work groups staffed by any of our companies that want to participate. And those are work groups we interact with sometimes multiple times a week, um, whether it's by email or conference call or in-person meetings. And that's a lot. That's a big part of the engine that drives what we do. This is not a trade association driven by staff. We serve our member companies and we rely on them heavily for their input uh, on multiple fronts to understand what challenges they're facing that we can help address, uh, to understand their experience at FDA, to understand their experience you know, at CMS. Mm-hmm. And of course, we provide a certain level of you know, expert insight as well. But a lot of our work is done in concert with our member companies. And so that's a big part of my day is maintaining those communications. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend a significant amount of time as well working across the entire office here. Uh, I, I lead all the activities that are relevant for our diagnostic member companies. Uh, and that requires coordinating activities across a trade association of about 75 people and multiple departments. So certainly a good part of my day is, is spent making sure internal communications are moving uh, quickly and effectively. Uh, and keeping us all working together and going in the same direction. Certainly, there's a significant part of my work as well, which involves maintaining relationships with other stakeholders. Uh, and so I certainly um, spend part of my time keeping some of those key stakeholders up to date on what we're doing, and even more importantly, collaborating with some of those organizations. For example, we collaborate with a number of patient advocacy organizations to put on programs, whether it's Hill Briefings, or, for example, we're doing a series of community roundtables around the country with the American Cancer Society on personalized medicine. So that's a really substantial part of our work as well as kind of the external and public affairs piece. During your career, I've noticed that you've been involved with nonprofits and the public sector, and uh, you haven't always been in this space either necessarily. I've, I saw that you have experience in agriculture and environmental issues. Um, are those projects still something that you're involved in or, or passionate about? 
Well, the first half of my career was largely focused in the agriculture area, and it was initially in my early in the outset of my career, it was somewhat by accident because I had an opportunity to go work for my home state senator, Patrick Leahy, and he at the time he was chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee, and it turned out to be where I where I got a permanent job. But it was a great start to my career because uh, young people in Congress get a frightening amount of responsibility, and so I was able to learn a lot very fast take responsibility for a lot of helping to lead, really, ultimately, even just in the space of a few years, some pretty complex issues. So I got a lot, I cut my teeth early uh, in the political environment, dealing with complex legislation, the politics, the policy, the process, how to work with people in that system, you know, to advance issues. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was that there's huge diversity of things that happen under the agricultural umbrella. And I've always gravitated towards science and tech issues. And ultimately, what I over the course of the time that I spent in and out of agriculture issues and environmental issues was that I was gravitated towards, again, the science and tech. And so whether it was alternative energy or pollution issues, for example, I, I got to, I really learned a lot um, kind of on the, on the science side. And the transition for me into the second half of my career really came through genetically modified organisms. When I was at the Department of Agriculture, controversies around genetically modified crops was uh, had peaked, still with us, but it was kind of at a high point at that time. And it really sparked my interest in farther reaching regulatory issues around how the FDA was going to handle genetically modified animals, for example, and food products and all those things. And so for the last, and that really started when I left the Department of Agriculture, I really moved into the human health field, initially focusing very much on regulation of biotechnology, then segued back into more of an advocacy role working for the American Cancer Society. And, and you know, from then on, it's all been FDA and, and health policy, health advocacy related. Um, and the only thing that I really carried over from those agricultural days is that uh, for a number of years, more recently, I did serve on the board of an agricultural development foundation based in Kenya. And that was my my last sort of keeping my hand in some of those issues, which I really enjoyed. It's um, something I stepped away from uh, a few years ago after my board membership ended. You've obviously had a range of experience in the public and private sector here. Do you have any mentors uh, that you look to while you were starting your career or even, or even today? And if so, who was your most influential mentor? That's a great question. I think all of us have people that we work with that have certainly influenced us. I'm, certainly that's true for me. I've had the great fortune to work with and for a series of great bosses. And I'd be hard pressed to pick any one of them that I would say was, you know, really stood out as a mentor because I learned a lot from all of them. I would say the hallmark of a number of people that I worked for was the fact that they really respected the people that worked for them and they gave them a lot of autonomy. So I was fortunate in multiple places, both as a young professional and as a more seasoned professional, to have multiple opportunities to work very much independently and to be given certain parameters to work in, but have a lot of autonomy and take a certain amount of risk. And I think that, you know, I a lot as a consequence, and it's something I've tried to model myself, you know, in various positions for the staff that have worked for me. I would say that, you know, one of the people that really still stands out for me is when I worked for Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa in the late 90s. It's not so much him as a boss, although he was my boss, but more his, the approach he took to any issue that came to his desk. And of course, in his position, he was handling a huge variety of things, not only agricultural and environmental, which are the things I was working on at the time. But he's very involved in uh, health care issues and other public policy and public health issues. And the thing that always struck me about 
Senator Harkin was that he was genuinely interested in just about everything that landed on his desk. He asked thoughtful questions. He was engaged. He was just sincerely interested in everything. And I've often thought about that because I don't think I've consciously modeled myself on that, but I share that broad, broad sort of set of interests. And um, I think it really served me well to maintain interests outside of, outside of just the things I'm working on at work. Sure. So if someone is a, wants to be a, a leader in this space, the diagnostics world, uh, do, you, do you see any value in them uh, working in the public sector to understand that world at all? Like, what, what is your opinion of that? Well, I think, you know, for any industry that is in the healthcare space in particular, so tightly connected to the public sphere, right? You have to go through a regulatory approval process. A big part of your market involves getting paid by Medicare. Um, I think it's, you know, it's not, I wouldn't call it essential to have actually worked in the public sector, but you certainly need to have a pretty deep understanding um, of the way things get decided in the various agencies, of the way Congress does its work, um, what the opportunities are to to change policy, um, and just to be able to grasp some pretty complicated, you know, policy issues. Um, so I, I think it's certainly, I think it's certainly beneficial. Um, I don't know if it's completely essential, but I think anyone who really wants to be, you know, a leader in their field. If it involves healthcare, um, then I think you really have to be fluent with all the intersections with the government and the public sector. Are there any good resources, or maybe um, obviously your organization is a great, a great one to know? But can you think of any other ways that they can get that experience and that knowledge so that they can be effective with what they do and not be held back by issues with regulation, for instance? Well, that's a great question. I think if you're in an industry or company that has trade associations, they give a very self-interested plug, but trade associations really are the nexus between the private sector and the public sector. This is where, you know, private sector comes together to really chew on public policy issues and figure out um, what public policy is beneficial and what changes in policies are needed and can be effectively promoted to Congress and other agencies. So if one is in the private sector and, you know, doesn't have the opportunity or for some or doesn't necessarily want to have a public sector job, then getting involved in trade association or professional societies that are working in these areas is 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 a really really good way to come to understand these issues and actually be engaged hands-on. When I moved directly from, you know, the administration into the private sector, and particularly when I went to the American Cancer Society and later to another trade association, I was somewhat concerned that it would be less interesting, frankly, than working in the government because working in the government is a just being at a tremendous you know intersection of a lot of interesting things going on. There's a tremendous amount of information flowing and have the ability to effect a lot of significant change. I was very relieved to find out that working in the sort of, again, this private sector intersection with the public sphere in a trade association or a patient advocacy organization or a professional society is an incredibly dynamic place. We are spending as much time, you know, thinking about certain policy issues, spending more time thinking about certain policy issues than anyone in Capitol Hill. Uh, So we end up becoming more expert than just about anyone that we work with on Capitol Hill or in some cases, depending on the issue, within the government agencies. In a lot of ways, 
outside, technically outside this public sector, I mean, working to represent private interests, one can become extremely expert. So working with one's professional society, again, or one's trade association is a fantastic way to get the kind of learning and essentially a similar experience that one would get actually working for the government. I have three kind of fun career questions to follow up with here. Uh, do you still have time to talk? Sure do. All right. So first, if you could go back to the beginning of your career and do something differently, what would you do? One thing I would do, which is just very basic and practical, which is I would I would go back and I would get my MBA, which I strongly considered when I was headed off to law school and I almost pursued a joint degree. But I think much as my law degree has given me a very uh, useful general education, I really think an MBA would have done the same. Over time, I've certainly absorbed a lot of, I think, some of the kinds of information that one would get out of having an MBA. But I just think it's one of those tools that I would like to have now that's harder to get now that I probably could have done more easily early on. And in terms of experience, it's not something that I highly regret, but if I could go back and figure out a way to squeeze it into those early years, I would have gone and worked on a political campaign. I think that would have been you know, both interesting and fun, and it probably would have helped me build maybe a somewhat additional set of skills. Certainly, I, you know, working in the working in the political sector and working in Congress a number of years, I was very much in that in that similar environment. But working on a political campaign is is really unique. And I think that if I could have figured out a time when I could make no money and sleep on people's floors for a year, it would have been an interesting experience. Sure, character building, no doubt. Exactly. What was your first leadership role in life? And while doing it, did you learn anything that has stood the test of time? Well, you know, I, I even look back to the first few years that I spent working in the Senate right out of college. And although I did not have staff reporting to me, I wasn't a leader in that sense. Just in those that relatively small amount of time, I ended up assuming a, you know, roles and responsibilities that essentially required me to be a leader in negotiating with senior government agency officials and others across the across the Senate and even with the House as we negotiated pretty significant and complex pieces of legislation. And I think the one thing that I would say I really, I don't know if it was a skill or something that I, I learned then, but it was certainly something that I honed early on, which was recognizing the importance of listening at least as much as one is talking. I think it's a skill that's really continued to be useful to me, being sensitive to what other people are saying and sitting in a room and hearing five different points of view and, and getting what everyone is saying. And if, you're, if you can do that, then you can figure out a path forward that might bring everyone together. And that's what working in this town is all about. And that's something I learned early on, and it's always stuck with me. Do you have any rituals or tools for managing your day-to-day uh, that help you stay productive, and that can be anything from you know daily exercise or maybe an app that you use to manage your day. Uh, what what do you do to stay productive? I really use one tool in particular, which is not earth shattering, but it's been very effective. I subscribe to a service that allows me to create multiple folders in my inbox that then uh, automatically route certain kinds of emails into those different inboxes keeps my primary inbox a lot clearer of stuff that would be distracting that I don't have to look at right away. Uh, and I have to say that's been a significant difference. That um, was the one tool I was really happy to start using. Other than that, I would have to say that I don't have you know an elaborate series of rituals or a particularly disciplined approach to my day. But I would, I would call it one thing I do in particular, which is not really about managing my workload, but it's about continuing to stay fresh and engaged and creative about the work I do. And that is to read as widely as I can, 
I don't have a huge amount of time to read, but I try to read a variety of publications, at least skim through them. And I, and it's partly because I subscribe to some of these magazines for my kids, but popular mechanics, popular science, you know, skimming through, you know, numerous LinkedIn posts and just in reading a Twitter feed, which is composed of a lot of things out of life sciences and material sciences and uh, so forth. And really just keeping an eye on what's out there, partly because I continuously find sort of somewhat unexpected linkages to the work that I do, but mostly because I think that it keeps me fresh and creative to, even if it's just 10 minutes reading about some really cool thing that's going on in material sciences, like biofilms that self-repair concrete, for example, um, it keeps me, it just keeps me energized and it makes me realize what amazing things are going on across the industry in general. And it keeps me more sensitive to the things that my companies are doing, frankly. It makes me appreciate every day the kind of tremendous uh, ingenuity that's going on in the companies I represent. And um, so I, I really call that out as one of the most important things I do, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes a day. It's just reading outside, reading outside my field or in adjacent areas. That is all the questions I have for you, and I want to be sensitive to your time. This was very informative. I loved hearing about your day-to-day and how you advocate for this industry. Look forward to doing this again sometime. Thank you for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure, Zach. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. For links and information about the discussion or for more episodes, please visit sloanpartners.com. See you next time on Becoming CEO. This podcast is brought to you by Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the diagnostics, life science tools, healthcare information technology, and laboratory testing industries. Sloan Partners, premier talent delivered.